welcome back to Wes and Conversations about the films of Wes Anderson. This is episode eight, and this is the part of the podcast where I say the name of the episode. And last week we explored a few different options because the options were so limited and it was such a difficult exercise. And this week we're going to mention a couple of different options because (laughs) they're both so good. So first I want to say that if this were Blank Check with Griffin and David, the podcast that we are copying, uh, I, I expect that one day if they do Wes Anderson on their podcast, that their miniseries may be called The Grand Podcast Hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since we're the Smug Buds and we're doing our own version of it, this, oh episode, my God. Is, this episode is called The Smug Bud a pest hotel. When when I said oh my god, I suddenly knew exactly what you were going to do, and I just want to say I was correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um that's a natural fit. And my name is Will, and I'm one of the hosts, and the other host is uh named Liz. Hi, Liz. Hey Will, how are you? How are you feeling? I, I'm doing okay. This is uh this is an important episode and it, because <laughs> because it's an important moment in time and and we alluded to it last week because last week we sort of straddled Halloween by recording it beforehand and mm-hmm. releasing it afterwards. Mm-hmm. And this time we're straddling the presidential election. It's November like, 1st when we're like recording I, this. I almost can't even imagine talking about this too much because it just will feel too painful next week. I mean that this is this is a very uncomfortable position to be in. I almost feel like we we should have postponed this. If only <laughs> if only Wednesday were a holiday this week, which is it's not this week, it's going to happen next week. Yeah. Vet, Veterans Day. But if Veterans Day were this week, this Wednesday, I would have said let's record after Tuesday mm-hmm. <laughs> when we know a little bit more. Yeah. Uh but oh well, um we're just going to Pretend like that's not happening. Yes. <laughs> and you can listen to it, hopefully, in a world where you can pretend that it hasn't happened and that's not too p- difficult or too painful. Yeah. Hopefully, if if anything, you can listen to this and find solace in it, regardless. <laughs> yes. Or solace, even. Is that how you say that? That's how I say it. I <laughs> Not for, not for me to say how it is correctly or properly said. I'm trying to think. I don't I don't know. I don't think I have any old business. Well, I do. Oh. Old business. Okay, so real quick, I wanted to say something about Joe Para. Oh, yeah. Which is that uh, it is tradition to watch the Fall Loop episode of Joe Pera mm. from season one on the day when he says that he always does his annual fall loop, which if I remember correctly, I'm gonna, and if I'm wrong, I'm going to cut this out of the podcast so that I'm not embarrassed. But I remember him saying that he does it every Saturday after Halloween. Yes. Yeah. Because that's when he has the jack-o'-lantern. Yes. And uh, Saturday in particular, but this year, Halloween was a Saturday. Yes. Which begs the question, would Joe Para wait a whole week 
to make that fall loop and dispose of this jack-o'-lantern? Or would he do it the very next day, Sunday, November 1st, which Mm -hmm. today is? So this is to say that I believe, in my opinion, today when we're recording this is the correct day this year to rewatch that episode of the show. However, if you haven't done so, I invite you when you're hearing this, uh, it's it's not too late. Yeah, uh, I we're think that's we're a great still idea. in the afterglow of of Halloween. My other old business is two quick things about Moonrise Kingdom that I didn't say last week. Yeah. And one of them you sort of set me up for and I missed it by a mile. Yeah. Uh, and that's because you brought up Quentin Tarantino last week. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And despite that, I failed to mention, like I intended to, that Moonrise Kingdom was nominated for exactly one Academy Award. Oh. Do you know what it is? Screenplay? Yes. Original oh. screenplay. Oh. Correct. Oh. Now... <laughs> I'm going to ask you another question. Yeah. Put you, putting you to the test, but I've already given you a hint. Uh-huh. Do you do you know what it lost to? I'm assuming a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yes, that's right. Which one? Django Unchained. Oh. That was the year of Django. That's a good movie. Actually, I think that might be my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if I might agree with you. I would have to take some time to think about that. Um I just thought it was interesting. Uh, I I mean, I always find it interesting to point out what awards these movies were nominated for Mm -hmm. um, and what they might have won. But also it was especially interesting because we've spent a little time in the past two weeks uh, making Tarantino comparisons. So Uh, and then the second point, which is sort of out of out of left field, I'll say, is um, have you seen the movie Patterson? Yes. Yes. I was going to bring this up in our 10th episode. Oh, okay. That's fun. But we can talk about it now. But yeah, it's a Moonrise Kingdom connection, which is that if you watch the Jim Jarmusch movie Patterson starring Adam Driver as a bus driver, (laughs) uh, there is a scene. Named Patterson. Yes, that's right. His character's name is Patterson as well. But he lives in and works in Patterson, New Jersey. And uh, there's a scene in the film, like several scenes in the film. He's just on the job. He's just driving his bus. Yeah. And we get like a scene from the bus. And he and we get shots of him. But he doesn't necessarily interact with anyone on the bus. He's he's just there. And we we can infer like he's listening he's absorbing this because then he writes poems he writes poetry um there's a scene on the bus where the two people talking to each other on the bus are uh young people played by jared gilman and Kara hayward yeah and it's really sweet their scene is really sweet particularly out of all the scenes in that movie yeah, Sam and Susie from Moonrise Kingdom, just a little bit more grown up. I uh, I didn't look up when Patterson came out, but it must have been like 2016, maybe. I would say it was like three or four years later than Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, they, um, they're definitely like solidly teenagers. It's 2016, yeah. Cool. But they like, you know, Jared's voice is like totally dropped. Um, right. 
which it hasn't. It, but it's funny because I th- I'm sure you noticed this too. But when you watch the um, when you watch the interviews that they did for Moonrise Kingdom, his voice mm-hmm. had dropped like basically immediately. <laughs> like right. by the time that they got to where they were interviewing, his voice was already like significantly deeper. Like they yeah. really caught him right before it did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really sweet. They're talk. They're like college students. Mm-hmm. Um hypothetically because they're going to class but it's like middle of the day so it can't, right. they're probably not in high school and right. um they're talking about like um like philosophy yeah and they're, they're like anarchists ab- right yeah they're <laughs> talking about like an anarchist uh who was from italy but lived in patterson new jersey and it's mainly her talking it, mm-hmm. it's it's almost a, a monologue but but he speaks up uh, a, a little bit as well and uh, yeah, it's just like a nice treat. Yeah, and a, they did that a, on on purpose. You oh, know what I mean? Yeah, clearly. Yeah, it it it's like an homage. Yeah. To Moonrise Kingdom, to it, it's like um, stunt casting. I I got I get an I got in an argument with this guy one time, who I just really disliked. Um, <laughs> but uh, he was he was a roommate's friend. And so uh, he would spend time in the place where I lived, um, <laughs> sort of against my will. And uh, uh, he was like a media studies major. And we were arguing about arrested development. And at, and at that time, th- there was the fourth season, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. But not the fifth season that would come later. So this was uh, in grad school then? Yes, this was okay. in grad school. And uh, he was complaining about the casting of Kristen Wiig and Seth Rogen as young Lucille and young George Sr. Why? Well, he called it typecasting. What? He was like, I don't like typecasting. And and it's and and he was like he 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 disapproved uh-huh. of that like you know, we just got a celebrity in here and like that's supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. But he called it typecasting and I kept arguing with him and going like, if anything, they're both playing against type. Yeah. <laughs> like it is, it it's cameos by celebrities. That's not typecasting. Typecasting Seth Rogen is putting him in the role of a stoner in yeah. a stoner comedy. Yeah. That's not what this role is. And and my huge regret is that at the time you didn't know the word. I knew it. I just couldn't think of it. I I, having this conversation, I never remembered the term stunt casting, Mm -hmm. which is what it is. It's that kind of like it's a stunt. You recognize this person. We cast them for that reason. Like Neil Patrick Harris playing himself in Harold and Kumar or something. The one thing I will say about that little scene in Patterson is that the nice thing about it is you can sort of imagine it like an alternate universe where they were able to stay together still. Like almost like they were – almost like – because we know that other movie takes place in what, 1965? Right. And so you can almost imagine some like world where they're like time travelers or they just live forever and they have youth. Or you could even imagine that like – I don't know – they they are they don't like hold hands or kiss or anything. Yeah. Like you could imagine that like 
these are these are their kids yeah. or something, you know, something like that like their brother and sister mm-hmm. um anyway but they're uh, very they're very clearly happy to be physically with one another not like with each yeah. other romantically necessarily but they're very yeah. clearly happy to be on the bus with each other and to be mm-hmm. to be friends and it's it's nice i will say mm-hmm. that movie i find to be deeply boring <laughs> <laughs> did you did you watch all of it like for yeah. fun uh, well, sort of. I, I, I watched it uh, at an outdoor screening at the Poetry Center uh, oh, here that's in nice. Tucson. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I enjoy I like I just like low key enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's a very quiet movie. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's sort of peaceful. Like I, if I were to ever put it on again, it would be like for having it on in the background. Yeah. Not, I, I, I have no intention of like attentively watching it again. I would just find that <laughs> unnecessary. But but it's like there's some like, yeah, really like touching scenes. Yeah, I am. Um, I, I watched it because I had heard of it and then forgotten about it. And then I remembered it again when I rewatched Moonrise Kingdom mm-hmm. a few months ago in preparation for this podcast. And I was like, oh, I should watch this so I can see that part. And then I was watching it and I was just like, it, it was, I was like, movies like this should be allowed to exist and I don't need something super, super fast paced, but this is like kind of boring me to tears. And I also love Adam Driver. I just love seeing yeah. him move. I love seeing his face. Mm-hmm. I love seeing him say words. Like, yeah. so the, <laughs> the fact that that too was not a full draw for me, I think. All right, so let's use that as a springboard for talking about just the joy of seeing people who you love to see in movies. Yes. In movies. Uh, We need to talk about a 2014 Wes Anderson film called The Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember distinctly the first time I saw this movie, uh, which is easy it was not that long ago uh six years ago uh did you see this film i did not see it in theaters i saw it at my mom's house because blake had it had like a physical copy of it Mm -hmm. because he had seen it and liked it and well i loved it maybe and so he was like we should watch it it's good and i was like well yeah clearly i'm gonna watch a wes anderson movie um and yeah i really liked it um and then I didn't watch it again until about six o'clock this morning because mm-hmm. I had a very busy Halloween Saturday. Yeah. And I was like, shit, I don't remember this fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I paid for it on Amazon and watched it on my phone. Mm. And then have been just a perfect of, way to watch this film. Have just been scrolling through to get screenshots of it this afternoon. So for me, because this movie came out in 2014, uh, speaking of grad school, like I just was a moment ago, um, that, that was the year that I graduated from my uh, master's program. Mm. Um, this movie uh, came out in limited release and then it was, you know, uh, platformed more, more widely. Um, I... Uh, don't remember the exact time of year that this happened, but I went from Ohio to Arizona to visit Dana. Oh, 
who was in grad school up in Tempe. Mm-hmm. And while I was in town, uh, we got the opportunity, as Dana did a few times throughout uh, her education at ASU, uh, an opportunity opportunity to see a pre-screening of this film. Oh shit! In in a movie theater uh, on the on the campus. Mm-hmm. And um, the way Dana describes this to me, I guess uh, it was sort of advertised to some programs. Uh, I'm sure like the film, television, media studies, et cetera, probably got it first and foremost. But I guess the creative writers did, too. Um, and uh, Dana told I asked Dana, did you see any other movies this way? And she said uh, Inside Lewin Davis was the other one. Mm. Um, and so uh, I saw this movie. Um, I Again, I don't remember exactly when. So I'm just sort of estimating when I say it was not long before it was it released. Out. It was yeah. not so early in the process that it was like a test screening. Yeah. The movie was done. It yeah. was. It just happened to be not in theaters quite yet. Mm-hmm. And I remember it being a full theater. And I remember there being like a talk back afterwards, but not with anyone who made the movie. Just a yeah, I was going to say back. with whom? <laughs> yeah, a talk back with like, I don't some probably some faculty like head of the film department yeah. or something like that. Whoever hosted this thing, um, we didn't stick around for very long mm-hmm. for that. Um, but I saw this movie. I thought it was delightful. Um, I almost feel as if I've seen the movie again since then. But I think that that is just a testament to like the way that it's stuck in my brain because mm-hmm. I don't actually have any memories of watching it between then and now. So I think actually the second time I saw it was last night or, or Friday night. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, it was a joy to rewatch this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not completely certain how I was going to feel about rewatching this movie because I sort of had uh, the conflict between my initial reaction which was excitement. And this movie is great. And I loved watching it. Mm-hmm. And then the sort of aftertaste that I had afterwards, which came from talking to other people about the movie mm-hmm. and sort of cast a shadow over my enjoyment of it and made me think, uh, maybe this is not one of his better movies. Why? What were you hearing from other people? Okay, so I'm glad you asked because that invites me to get more specific about what I mean. Yeah. Um, so Names, I, dates, places, baby. Okay, well, I went Verbatim back to... Verbatim quotes. Again, I don't remember the exact timeline. <laughs> but, it's, but I went back to Ohio and at some point my friends in Ohio were able to see the movie in theaters. Mm-hmm. And then I got to have the experience of like, I had already seen it I had probably already hyped it up to them because I enjoyed it so much. Then they saw it. And afterwards, I got to come together with them and say, like, how much did you love it? Wasn't it just so amazing? Because it's like, I I would call it like a Wes Anderson movie on steroids, right? Mm -hmm. It's like everything is turned dialed up to 11. What? 
Uh, what's the matter with that? There's missing things in this, but we'll talk about that. Okay, yeah. Well, maybe it doesn't have everything that he's ever done, but yeah, like yeah. some things that are on the surface, like the cast, yes, the colors, sure. the yes. production design, yes. the costumes, even the music. It's like in your face, you know, uh, this is uh, like a full realization of... of um, his style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I was like, oh, how much did you love it? And I had two friends in particular who were sort of um, muted about their reaction to the film. And the one thing that I really remember distinctly mm-hmm. was a, 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 a close friend of mine for those two years that mm-hmm. we spent together in the same program. Um, I remember him saying, but what is it about? <laughs> and I didn't have an answer for that at the time. Because That's so funny. I feel like this is one of the most plot heavy. No, 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 no. Okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> so my friend was, um, I, I hope it's not too unfair to say he was like a little bit of a snob. Yeah. And he was getting his master's in poetry. Mm-hmm. And what he was looking for, as it seemed as if he was looking for from all movies and television that I talked to him about, he was he his priority was story. And I don't mean story in the sense of plot, like you were just saying. Like emotional storytelling? I'm not only emotional, but like thematic. Themes like, and motifs. Yes. Like as if the purpose of all narrative art Uh were not merely entertainment, but there's a higher purpose to what he was interested in watching, which is like the ex, you know, the exploration of like having a purpose, Mm -hmm. like, like the, the, having a, 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 an idea or an issue that like had to be explored through like telling this story. Um, And so I watched this movie and just enjoyed the entertainment of it. Mm -hmm. And so I was not prepared to answer a question like that. Like, what is it about? Because I just enjoy, I, I, I was just along for the ride and I enjoyed it in the way that you would enjoy a comedy or an adventure movie. Yeah, for sure. Which is, which is, by the way, the main thing that we have to talk about, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Oh, it what it as an adventure movie? Exactly. But oh. but we'll but we'll get to that in a moment. But so so from this sort of highfalutin perspective of like what is the what is this saying as a work of art rather than like how delightful a work of entertainment is it? Uh-huh. Um, I was I was not prepared to engage on that level, and so uh, much like my conversation with the roommate's friend where I had a regret about not being able to pull stunt casting uh, Mm -hmm. out of my back pocket. I I had this regret of like, I didn't know how to answer that question. And I sort of had to feel like maybe he was right. Like maybe there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, spectacular stuff on the surface of this film but it's sort of shallow and there's sort of nothing of any great meaning 
uh, underneath that surface. Yeah. I rewatched this movie. I think that there's a sort of happy medium that I'm uh, that I am happy to live within, which is sort of in between. Which is that like this is an adventure comedy first and foremost, mm-hmm. and I enjoy it on that level, and I enjoy the sort of smorgasbord of what it is to just you know it's a feast for the eyes. This yeah, movie. Yeah, for sure. At the same time, it also successfully has an undercurrent of great sadness. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that sadness is earned not only in a manipulative, sentimental, you know, I'm going to make you care about this character and then something bad's going to happen to them. That's sad, but that's not the same as it being a story about any kind of idea. Yeah. In addition to that, there is also like you can pull out of it the themes that have to do with the characters, have to do with the setting, have to do with the plot and all the way that it's dressed up. And uh, it's it's there uh, in addition to um, the, the sort of enjoyable thrill ride stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's it's below the surface in in the way that like you can't we we couldn't really say about the other Wes Anderson movies except I mean maybe you could talk this way about Fantastic Mr. Fox but Mm -hmm. we also talked about like the conversations that Mr. and Mrs. Fox have and and how that there that thematic resonance is like close to the surface it it is clear like what it's it's about you know, are they wild animals? It's it, about, you know, can you recapture the old glory? And and Royal Tenenbaums with all its like depressed characters and mm-hmm. and Rushmore with its, you know, character study. And and uh, this this movie is hiding. It, it's this movie is concealing a little bit more. It's like tragedy and and it's like themes yeah so this has a good segue for me which is the fact that it's a fucking four let layer frame story yes the russian nesting doll which we have to talk about because so like do you remember how well let me restart this when you came to susquehanna did you take fiction at your freshman year first semester yes were you introduced by someone to the idea of a dorm story? Maybe. I don't remember. So the way that frame stories were initially explained to me yep. was the idea of uh, as a mis- were, were that they were a mistake. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the way that they were a mistake was the idea that, you know, a guy gets to college and he's sitting in his dorm room and then he remembers a bunch of stuff about his ex-girlfriend Mm-hmm. And then it goes back and he's in his dorm room and he thinks I should call my ex-girlfriend. Yeah. The idea being that the story is really the center part. You don't need the frame. Yeah. And here we've got four layers of frame, which are um, the girl with the book by yes. the statue memorializing the dead author. Yes. The author himself as an old man recounting his time at the Grand Budapest Hotel as a young man. Right. Being told the story of 
the, what is really the story by an older Zero right. who then flashes back to a younger Zero. <laughs> right. So yeah, right. Exactly right. It's four and and one of them is kind of easy to remember because we spend the most time on it and we revisit it. And then one layer up is Tom Wilkinson mm-hmm. with the kid with the gun who I noticed yeah. on this viewing that kid is dressed exactly like a James Bond villain <laughs> and like literally points his gun at the camera when he yeah. comes over to apologize and just stands next to Tom Wilkinson. Yeah. And then the really hard, easy to forget, like barely there, outermost frame is it is a book yeah. and it is being read by someone who never speaks. They visit and there is... Uh, hotel keys right all over mm-hmm. the uh, memorial which I think is a brilliant touch because once again Wes Anderson is making movies that are actually books they are books and they and and very and interestingly I something I said to Dana while we watched this is I think part of what makes this so funny is how much profanity there is in it so and, much and the juxtaposition between the profanity and the sort of you know, tut tut, uh, supposed to be very buttoned up uh, appearance of their, yeah. you know, society. Um, and uh, w- that is uh, an interesting juxtaposition, the profanity, the, the fact that this is, you know, an R-rated movie, mostly because of profanity, uh-huh. um, is an interesting juxtaposition with the storybook quality, which is not just true of this movie, but of other movies. Mm-hmm. We normally think of, okay, if it has a storybook quality, it's probably for children or it's for families, like children are invited. Um, but Wes and- what Wes Anderson do- is doing is he's he's making the- these storybook style films for adults. Like mm-hmm. even even when he made Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is ostensibly a children's film, there's clearly more of a bent to like, okay, this doesn't seem like it was made to appeal to children yeah. in, 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 in any intentional sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but this movie, especially, it's like, you know, no, 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 no kid uh, could, could be allowed to watch this movie. Yeah. That's by design. But, and, and yet at the same time, um, it, it it has its storybook uh, attachment, um, which we would normally think of as sort of sort of juvenile or like nostalgic for childhood. I I was thinking a lot about the writing of this movie, particularly with the Jude Law section, yeah. because the way that those people talk. And I was trying to think of an example of a book, but except that I usually find these books really boring. But then I remembered Wes Anderson gave me an example, which is that in The Life Aquatic, when um, Owen Wilson comes upon uh, Jane for the first time in her room and she's reading from that book, she says something that just sounds almost incomprehensible with how complicated it is. It's like, I was not as I had been uh, uh, known for. Like She just like goes on the sentence, which is like completely convoluted. And there's a sentence in this, which reminds me of that, which I'll tell you now. It's when they're in the baths and mm-hmm. he's saying that um, he's basically inviting him uh, Jude Law to dinner. Right. And he says, if you're not being merely polite and you must tell me if that's the case, but if it genuinely does interest you, 
may I invite you to dine with me tonight? (laughs) And I will tell you my story, such as it is. Yes, exactly. And it will be my pleasure and indeed my privilege to tell you my story, such as it is. Yes, Yes, exactly. Yes, I remembered the such as it is. I forgot the the privilege part. Um, yeah, I want to say I, I love a, a framed narrative and I love a uh, Russian nesting doll that's created from frames within frames. Mm-hmm. And I want to say you, you invoked uh, intro to fiction. I want to invoke uh, literature classes uh, for me going back to high school, but then again uh, in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm talking about one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, Frankenstein. Oh yeah, uh, by oh, baby. Mary Shelley, which uh, has it, it. It has three. It it doesn't go as it has po- three. Yeah. Well, I felt yeah. like when Wes Anderson did four, it was almost like a real fuck you. <laughs> it, it it is sort of like look at how many plates I can spin. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, just it it the introduction is great. You could, uh, I'm just thinking of this now, you could sort of make a comparison to what I said last week about how it takes a while before we actually meet Sam in Moonrise Kingdom. And that Mm -hmm. serves to sort of like build anticipation and create a little bit of a mythology for the character before he gets his hero introduction. And that's the same way for Mr. Gustav, right? It's, It's like the introduction is necessary to sort of set the scene set the table as it were um so it just delivers like more of a powerful punch Mm -hmm. um when the story actually starts in earnest with the the part one uh slide right i'll call it a slide title card whatever you want to call it yeah can we talk about just really quick before we get too far away the things that we don't get in this movie sure um we don't get any needle drops yeah True. So, so um, at this point, so in the last movie, there was some scoring that Mark Mothersbaugh worked on, but now we've almost completely transitioned to Alexander Desplat. I think yeah. is his name. Alexandre Desplat. Yeah, or- and so um, hypothetically, there's some things in here that are, you know. They're classical pieces of music performed by orchestras. You know, we mm-hmm. can't really have like a, like an original. Of that, right? Because when those pieces were composed, they didn't have recording, <laughs> right? Um, but we don't get we don't get any needle drops at all, which is a weird thing. Um, we get a okay. lot. Uh, let me just say real quick, though, I didn't yeah. miss them. I, I I didn't even think about that. I maybe I think I did just because the mute I, I did, but not in a way that I missed it. Where I'm like, oh, he should have put in some like Brit rock into this. I'm yeah. not saying that, right? Um. I missed them in the sense that the music was very, very often felt further back to me hmm. than being more in the foreground as it is in some of the other movies. Yeah. So I noticed it. Let me put it that way. Yeah. I also, I'm just thinking you're just uh, inviting me to think about this now. I hadn't really considered it, but perhaps part of the reason for that is that um, this, this movie has so much more plot yeah. Than most of the other movies. Again, Fantastic Mr. Fox, you could make a case that's a little bit uh, of an exception. But um, in one of the interview clips I watched uh, for this movie, uh, Wes Anderson says, 
uh, quite funnily, he says, um, prior to this, the, the films I made, it would be something of an exaggeration to say that they had a plot. <laughs> uh, and this and this movie uh, is is so plotted. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we've talked about needle drops in the past, we've sort of talked about the work that they're doing, mm-hmm. um, the sort of weight that they're adding to a scene. Um, and the way that they're sort of... Um, uh, they're elevating the scene. They're elevating the the narrative. And so perhaps in his plot light other movies, there there were more gaps left. Yeah, that makes sense. For, for that kind of storytelling through Needle Drop. Whereas this is like a thrill a minute, you mm-hmm. know, just race from start to finish. Um, and there's really no room for that like slow motion walk down the hallway, you know, mm-hmm. scored to Rolling Stones or the Kinks or whatever. Well, so that brings me to my second thing, which is that we I think we technically get slow motion when Agatha's on the carousel and we're looking at her face. Right. But, but n- yeah, not that in the shot way that is we've so had in stylized the past. that yeah, you can't even like see that she's moving from point A to point B. It's and more so, so that she just like is glowy and dewy and right. This is um, a this this is a good a time as any we will ever get to say that that's probably my favorite shot in the movie. Oh, is uh Cersei in the on the carousel? Is that close up, yeah. Yeah. And just the lights, the sort of circling lights behind her. Um that that's probably like the most indelible image. Uh, of any in this movie for me i think that that's um up there for me i actually don't think i ever picked a favorite i didn't actually ever pick a favorite shot um we also don't get we get a lot of text on the page Mm -hmm. um more so maybe than any other movie actually there are a lot of documents in this film yes um, which is also an interesting thing because, and I took screenshots of these for you to look at later if you're interested, but, um, like the, the couple of, um, newspapers that we see at the beginning yeah. actually tell us a lot of things that are going to happen later. Right. But there's no way you'd read them in the movie theater. Right. Because you wouldn't be able to pause the movie theater. Right. But there's hardly any, there are overhead shots. But there are not overhead shots of things. Mm-hmm. You're so talking about like the little tableau yes. of like a table setting. Yes. Um, which I feel like actually could have worked in this movie. Sure. I feel like the one time we do get it is um, when she's putting the digging tools into the pastry. Yes. Um, we sort of get the overhead shot of her moving those things because otherwise, but but that almost feels like not worth mentioning because there's not really a way to show that otherwise mm-hmm. quickly anyway. Yeah. Um, I just want to point out, I remembered another shot that might be my favorite, which is uh, when they are on the train having stolen boy with apple and uh, Gustav is describing the painting and... Uh, at, at at first, somewhat inexplicably, there is a small round mirror obscuring part yes. of the painting. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, Ray Fiennes says uh, that Madame D 
always said that there was a resemblance between him and boy with apple and he says do you see it and then he does the pose as if he's holding an apple (laughs) and then of course zero's face enters the small round mirror so that we can see him deliver his line of dialogue but only his reflection yes uh and it's the, the the f- the size of the mirror is <laughs> the so fact small. That it's so small. Uh, just <laughs> really makes it like uh, astounding, like uh, how 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 perfect it looks. I will actually say, I mean, I know that you just picked like a small, like a not a small, but like a very like interior shot. Yeah, like a very small interior shot. Yeah, I think that my favorite shots in this movie are always the really big ones uh-huh. so like i really love any shot of that dining room yeah just because like they're doing a very good job with having those tables six feet apart from one another mm-hmm. um or i really like the shots of like the hotel itself mm-hmm. which i think are pro- probably like a that's like a stop motion thing right the like the little elevator oh that you mean up. the exterior of the hotel yeah. Okay. I thought. Sorry. I thought you meant the lob, like seeing the lobby in all of. I its also love glory. seeing the lobby. Yeah. But yeah, the exterior when we see the exterior of the hotel with the funicular that goes up the yes, mountain, that's like the word for that. yeah. that's clearly a miniature. And I'm not yes. sure if there was any stop motion necessary. It that's might what be. I couldn't figure out. I think that the funicular is probably just on a wire, and it looks like stop motion just because of the way that a miniature. It's a little moves. jerky. Yeah. 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 Um. I, I, uh, miniatures, yes, stop motion, maybe. And then, um, similarly to that, the like skiing, sledding scene. Yes. I think those, all of those are my favorite shots. Like, I really, the yeah. things, the things that I really like seeing because images, you get to see this, like, I don't know why, too, because I'm normally all about the really close up, but mm-hmm. I do like things that are oversized and miniature. So I guess since yeah. I don't have many miniature options, I'm going for oversized. Right. Yeah. Um, Did you have anything else on your list of things that we don't get? Or could I use that ski scene mention as a transition? Um, No, use that as a transition. Okay. So uh, what I want to talk about is uh, the uh, adventure and the fact that the genre of this movie is an adventure comedy. And Mm -hmm. we have talked about or kind of sometimes talked around the fact that... uh, Wes Anderson movies, by and large, they they sort of defy genre. They don't yeah. fall neatly into comedy or drama. They're just sort of Wes Anderson movies. And mm-hmm. they're very funny and they have jokes in them and comedic performances. But they also are about tragic figures and depressed people. And they deal with very heavy things. Um, yeah. This movie deals with some heavy things. But I would say, not only do I need to say what I've already said, which is this is an adventure comedy. Yeah. I want to, the important thing that I want to do is is put that in context, which mm-hmm. if, if you've listened to the season of the podcast so far, you've, you've probably, you've, you have heard me say adventure comedy before. Yes. And so you know where I'm going. And and it's a uh, I have to reflect on the fact that it's a real blessing for the sake of the podcast that you, Liz, in particular, 
have a sort of outsized attachment to <laughs> the life aquatic. I feel like outsized attachment is like a really perfect way to describe the way that I love most things. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know you pretty well, so so I can offer that description. Yeah. Um, uh, the, your, your perspective as someone who prefers the life aquatic over almost anything Mm-hmm. Um, is is important to the podcast because uh, that perspective, I think, is complementary <laughs> to mine yes. for, for how different it is. Yes. Um, because the, the, the main takeaway that I have from re-watching the Grand Budapest Hotel in the context of this podcast exercise mm-hmm. is that this is the adventure comedy that he wanted to make before when he made The Life Aquatic Aquatic. three movies ago. Um, And uh, in particular, uh, when when we talked about some of the behind the scenes stuff uh, uh, in in, when we discussed that movie, I said, we saw Wes Anderson and Bill Murray uh, chatting and, and Wes Anderson saying, you know, somewhat jokingly we can only speculate on how jokingly or how seriously yeah you know maybe it'll be kind of like james bond (laughs) um and uh that's why i mentioned the kid's costume before because i don't think that that's a coincidence Uh um and also um i don't know how much you've watched james bond movies a fair amount yeah okay so you might be aware as i am aware because dana and i uh, kind of recently finished our years-long uh, exercise of watching all of the James yeah. Bond movies. I certainly have not watched all of them, but I watched a lot of them. Maybe you've watched enough to know that frequently, in my opinion, too often in the history of the <laughs> franchise, James Bond skis. Yes, he does all the time. You're yes. right. Yes. And this movie has a chase scene with the villain on skis and our heroes mm-hmm. on a sort of toboggan. Mm-hmm. And that is that is their James Bond moment. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that is not just me saying that and imposing th- that reading onto it. Like that is very much like literally what, what's happening. This, this is a movie that has the like adventure plotting Mm-hmm. That is closer to, say, like Romancing the Stone, which is the other movie that Wes Anderson mentioned in those behind the scenes featurettes when Bill Murray was repeating to him. Remember, it's like an action adventure type of movie. And Wes Anderson saying, was saying, yes, yes, it's an adventure comedy. It's like Romancing the Stone. Yeah. This doesn't have the the sort of, you know, romantic comedy center mm-hmm. uh, that Romancing the Stone has. But... It has the, you know, amount of plot and the pacing mm-hmm. and the the jokes and um, just the overall tone of uh, of an actual adventure movie. It actually it, it actually it, in the way that I think the Life Aquatic was supposed to be, mm-hmm. but in my opinion, fell short of that. Mm-hmm. This actually is the Wes Anderson version of uh, an, an action adventure 
uh, slash comedy movie. Yeah. There's, it's also really funny with the plot and how much plot there is and that adventure part of that, the sort of like having to get from point A to point B and having to undo something so that they can do something or do something so that they can undo something else. Um, cause there's that part where they're sitting on the hay bale, the mm-hmm. haystack. It's a stack. And he, Ray finds like, um, goes through sort of where they are. <laughs> yes. And he goes, and that, and, uh, and then he's like, he's like, you know, the painting is, is stolen, is stolen by us. The, this person's dead. We're, you know, we're going to be picked up by these people. And then Zero says, and Zero's confused. Yes. I, I think, I think, uh, Ray Fines ends it by saying Gustav H at large. Yes. And then he might <laughs> say, did I miss anything? And, and Zero <laughs> says, Zero confused. Mm-hmm. And Gustav affirms him by saying, yes, of course, Zero confused. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's a, that's a sort of beautiful summation of like the amount of things, the number of things, uh, uh, going on in this, um, movie that's only like what, an hour and 40 minutes or something. Yeah, it's short. So perhaps the best way for us to recap some of the plot of this movie is to put it in terms of capers. Yes, I, I didn't even try to count the capers. I needed your help with this. So I'll tell you my opinion, mm-hmm. which is that there are three capers in this movie. Okay. The first is they steal Boy with Apple from the will reading. Yes. The second is the prison break. Yes. And the third is the sort of finale of the movie Yes, with which the shootout. Yes, which which is uh, trying to regain Boy with Apple, and also in the process, the second copy of the second will. Yeah. Now a lot happens in this movie, so there might be other stuff that maybe you could put the caper label on. But in my opinion, those are those are the three main things that qualify. I think those are the three main things that qualify as well. Great. We also have another count that we check in with every week. <laughs> so no in, dead no dead dogs. But in hindsight. One dead cat. Maybe we should have called it the dead pet count. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't know about you, but I was not thinking about the fact that uh, Willem Dafoe kills Jeff Goldblum's cat. Yeah, really movie, violently. In this movie, yes. In In... Maybe this says something about me that I shouldn't admit publicly. But <laughs> you don't think of cats as pets? No, no, not not what I meant. I was just going to say how funny I think that scene is. <laughs> I I laugh out loud when Willem Dafoe throws the cat out the window. No, I do too. Good. I do want to talk about how violent this movie is, though. Okay. Because there's that which is like it's. I think part of the reason that scene is so funny is because we don't actually see the cat die. We sort of see like an overhead shot of it on the ground, but it's not, it's really far away. But yeah, like Jeff Goldblum's fingers getting oh, cut off. Right, yes. That's that's the sort of moment of, you almost can't believe that that just happened. Yeah. And then there's the red hair, not red herring, there's the misdirect we get where Agatha's escaping. Mm-hmm. 
And then we cut to Ed Norton reading the newspaper and it says, um, you know, that a local girl's been beheaded. Right. Now, the misdirect here is a little bit of a stretch because I don't think anybody would describe that woman, (laughs) that older woman. Yeah. Well, in the the 30s, maybe. Maybe. Maybe because she wasn't unmarried or something like that as a girl. But we see her head. Mm Mm-hmm decapitated yes that's head think there are a few things that will make me feel and it's not like i was like oh i'm so sick or something but there are a few things that make me feel more fucked up than a decapitated head like Hmm. a like a realistic looking decapitated head i think you're not saying though that this head is realistic looking i think that it's not i think it's as realistic okay so to be fair i've never seen a real decapitated head sure but um i don't think it looks cartoony i think it looks drained of color and it looks like something from the walking dead let me put it that way okay but not reanimated i think it's not car it's not fully cartoony it's not fully like claymation but also i think it's like a little closer to being that than you are giving it credit for okay I, I I think it's I think that they weren't going for straight realism. I think that when we see that character alive, I think that they styled her with makeup, etc., mm-hmm. to look a little bit plasticky, a little bit uh, clay-ish, uh-huh. a, a, a little, and I think that they did that on purpose so that when we see her head and it's you know a fake prop that that the prop resembles her as we saw her alive Mm -hmm. but i think it it i think it looks like somewhere in between the walking dead and like beetlejuice you know okay i think it's some somewhere maybe not in the exact midpoint maybe it's a little closer to walking dead but it's somewhere in the middle on that spectrum well, and part of the problem with The Walking Dead specifically is that those heads are always going to be rotting, re- reanimated. Yeah. So that makes them more horrific by like far. But sure. yeah, and I guess I was just thinking, oh, so something else we don't get in this movie, mm-hmm. unless I missed it, but correct me, is we don't get any explosions. Hmm. I guess not. I'm there's trying- a shootout. Yep. There's a shootout. There's um, stabbings. Uh-huh. That's, that's the other violent thing. That's the other like, really violent thing. Is it's when, very violent. Is when Gunther is slain in the catacombs. Uh that's the other uh yeah. really violent scene, which convenient place to die. Yes. Don't have to go far. Right, exactly. <laughs> um a blessing in disguise, you might yeah. say. But it's just funny for me to think about, I guess, specifically because um like this movie is otherwise like you said, like part of the reason this movie is funny is because they swear so much. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is the same where it's like, you know, I know we keep talking about, I keep bringing up this pink, but like this movie's pink. Like that's mm-hmm. the main thrust of this movie is the pink. It's not just the color of the hotel and the walls. It's the sky and it's those boxes right? Um, from Mendel's. Mm-hmm. And... um. It's such a, it's, I would call it a tea berry pink. Yes. This is the color of my favorite ice cream, my favorite ice cream flavor. And um, yeah, everyone's 
so often very proper. And so then to just there have there just be like murder and mut- not just murder, but like mutilation. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like is I'm, I'm just I don't even know if I have a conclusion about this. I just think it's like curious and um, a little bit off. I don't think it's totally off necessarily. It just sticks out from Wes Anderson movies. And there's definitely violent things that happen in other Wes Anderson movies. But I just feel like there's like a lot in this one. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And I feel like that's part of the point of what is being explored. Uh, It's sort of, it's supposed to be that type of movie, right? It's supposed to be, Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be in a genre that in my opinion, he's only sort of dabbled in up to this point. And and now he's like, he has fully developed the tools and the resources. It's funny because to, to contrast this with the Life Aquatic, the Life Aquatic is the time when, as we talked about, he sort of had a budget that was too high. Yeah. He still went over budget. He still went over time. And... He didn't, you know, he wasn't fully well equipped enough mm-hmm. to to handle that. And this is like trying to do a similar thing, but like on a scale where he is equipped to do to, you know, he has more experience, but it's yeah. also on his scale. Yeah. So this movie has like half the budget that Life Aquatic had. And he's able to refine like, okay, we can have, you know, a ski slope chase, but we're going to do it my way, which is the way that you can do it on this budget, Mm -hmm. which is with these old fashioned movie making techniques where you use miniatures and Mm -hmm. animation and it doesn't, it doesn't look real, but it's not supposed to. That's not the point. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not it's not supposed to be uh convincing realism. Um, it's supposed to be the version of the scene that not only how do they have the means to do it, but it is also in keeping with the aesthetic yeah. of of the whole uh film. Speaking of which, can we talk about my fun fact? Yes, please. I told Will before we recorded that I have a fun fact. So um, one of my favorite podcasts that I haven't listened to one bit since March is 99% Invisible, mm-hmm. um, which is a podcast about design. And um, I this came to me almost as if in a dream after I finished watching this movie this morning where I was like, I remembered this fact and I was trying to find it. So um, this is a podcast that talks about um, the design of things, both in terms of like architecture, but also... Um, in terms of things like this, which is the graphic design uh, and prop element of film. And this episode is specifically on hero props. And a hero prop is a prop that is um, almost as iconic to the film that you're watching as maybe a character or a costume in the character, uh, the costuming of a character. Um, and in this movie, the hero prop is those Mendel's boxes. Mm-hmm. But she talks a lot about... Um, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel specifically and about the way she goes about trying to create vintage um, um, objects. Mm-hmm. Um, so she says that like um, she really 
oftentimes is trying to go to flea markets to find actual vintage objects because it's really hard to look this stuff up. And she talks about how working with Wes Anderson is particularly great because um, he is so specific in the script in a way that a lot of other directors and writers aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like a really cool like screenshot of um, like one of her lists of like um, things that they needed to make. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought you'd find this interesting. Um, so this is a podcast, but they do have a pretty extensive uh, written part that you can see with images and it says at times authenticity can often conflict with reality though for design for for designers to find a compromise between the audience's expectations and the historical reality newspapers for instance can be a really good storytelling device says atkins if you need to tell the audience there's a war being fought you can show a newspaper headline saying there's a war on rather than spending millions on a battle scene but in reality those headlines may not match the approach of the of may not really match the approach of the period. And then she said, quote, in the beginning of the 20th century, English broadsheet papers didn't actually have newspaper headlines on the front pages at all. The front pages were covered with small ads advertising local businesses. Hmm. But that is not my fun fact. Okay. My fun fact um, is about the Mendel's boxes. Mm-hmm. Um. So she was talking about the graphic design of those Mendel boxes and she was really excited about them because she knew that they were going to be all over the film. Um, And then it says, even with careful planning, mistakes are made. In the Grand Budapest Hotel, there's a fictional bakery called Mendel's. Halfway through the shoot, the director noticed an error. He called and said, there's two T's and patisserie. And I looked at the box and realized that he was right. She had hand lettered the text and so it never went through a spell check. And they fixed this in post-production. And they made hundreds of these boxes, too. So they she had hand-lettered the the logo on the Mendel's boxes, and they printed, like, hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a prop that you can get, um, like, you can buy sure. on because they made it out into the world, this prop. Right. Um, and she said that the way that you can know if it's a real one is if it has two T's. If it has one T, then it's a reproduction. Now, granted, if it had two T's, it could still be a reproduction, but uh, a reproduction will never just have one T because all of the um, one T boxes that you see in the film, they literally just, they like photoshopped it, but movie photoshopped it. Isn't that wild to think about? Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> like for, because it is small too. Yeah. Like there's very few shots where you can see it um, really well, um, but yeah. So that's my fun fact about the Mendel's boxes. And I really would suggest listening to this episode, which is um, quite a delight. We'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, please do. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you uh, my fun fact. Uh, you know, in uh, trivia hunting for this movie, uh, I found exactly one thing that I thought was uh, worth sharing with you in this context. And uh, it's from uh, someone's uh, summary online of the commentary track on the uh-huh. uh, Criterion uh, DVD release of this movie. Um, this is also in the show notes. 28 things we learned from Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel commentary. And number 16 on the list is as follows. Sir mm-hmm. Ronan plays Agnes and Anderson recalls her asking what accent she should use for the character. Oh, right. Yeah. Quote. And I said, 
Well, Rafe is speaking like an English person and Jeff is speaking like Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> and Tony is speaking in the accent of Anaheim. And we have German actors who are speaking with German accents. So I guess Irish, unquote. <laughs> and then it goes on to say, Ronan replied that she had never played a character in her real accent. Quote, so her oh. first time is when she's playing a bakery girl from Zabrovka, unquote. <laughs> um, uh, the movie uh, Brooklyn was uh, still a, a year away uh, at that mm-hmm. time. Isn't it Sersha? What am I saying? Sersha. We're definitely close. <laughs> yeah. What do you say it is? Sersha. Sersha. Okay. I The way I remember this, and maybe this is a bad way to remember it, is my friend, my my friend, I, I'm delighted I just referred to her as my friend. My co-editor, Laura, taught me how to say it. Hmm. Um, cause she can just say it without thinking, which I think is a real, a real achievement. Yeah. <laughs> and finally she was like, Sersha, Sersha. And I was like, Sersha, like inertia. Mm-hmm. And that's how I remember to say it. Okay. That's good for me to know. Thank you. But I could be wrong. No, let's go with it. Um, can I also tell you that Kenny went out of his way to Google how to say Ray Fines for me? Oh, that's nice. So that I didn't fuck it up. <laughs> I had to do that for myself. And um, by I say went out of his way, I mean, I didn't ask him to do this. He no. just was like, this way you don't stumble. I was like, mm. Jesus. <laughs> How kind. <laughs> what a kind gesture. I had said fines. He thought it was fine. Mm. But I did call him Ralph. <laughs> sure. Understandably. So speaking of Sersha and Rafe. Mm-hmm. We should talk about the people who are in this movie. Yes. A million people. Yes. Rafe Fiennes introducing Tony Revolori, mm-hmm. Saoirse Ronan, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Tilda Swinton, Bill Murray, Bob Balaban, mm-hmm. um, the other crossed keys gentlemen. Well, I know Wally Wolodarski is one of them. I know. So is Warris. Yes, that's right. Couldn't remember his name. Thank you. Of course, uh, Jude Law, F. Murray Abraham, Tom Wilkinson. Um, who am I leaving on the table? Did you say Ed Norton? No, I didn't. Edward Norton is in the movie. Plays a yeah. Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to say- the Not for the first time. <laughs> no, probably not for the last. Um, I want to point out something that Dana said, uh, it, which gives us a way of talking about something that I, I also neglected in last week's episode. Um, she said about Edward Norton, um, it's like he's playing the same character that he did in Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. And I said, he's playing a Nazi here. <laughs> he, was, he was literally a Boy Scout in the last movie. Um, but I took her point. But I also want to use that as a springboard just for pointing out, because I never pointed out in the last movie that um, it's it's sort of it's sort of obvious. But I think I had to see an interview clip in order to connect the dots um, myself. Mm-hmm. An interview where Edward Norton says um, about his character in Moonrise Kingdom, um, he says like uh, I- I'm playing the the Wes Anderson analog in this movie. And and what he meant is that 
the way that Scoutmaster Ward, you know, keeps his camp in order uh-huh. is is com- comparable to Wes Anderson as a director. As as, uh-huh. as Wes Anderson is the director to the film, Scoutmaster Ward is the is the director of the uh, campsite. Yeah. Um, and I see what Dana is seeing and I see the similarities between mm-hmm. Ed Norton then and Ed Norton here. But also I think uh, I want to point out that there's a different, you know, couple of dots you can connect, which is that if Wes, if Edward Norton was doing what, what Wes Anderson does in that movie, yeah, the main character is that in this movie. Yes. Gustav sure. is the ringleader. I was going to bring this up for a different reason, so keep going. Gustav is the guy who is making sure that everything is just so, and he's directing everyone around him. Mm-hmm. And that that is a stand-in for Wes Anderson h- himself. Yeah. Being a director, having orders for many different people at once, and making sure that everything is just so and to his exact specifications. Mm-hmm. What, what did you want to say on this? Well, I wanted to bring this up, which is that the F slur shows up in this movie again. Yep. Um, and jokes about um, Gustav's sexuality come up even more than that. The joke I'm referring to otherwise is when he's in jail, um, one of the one of his cellmates says, we think you're, you're a real straight man. And he says, well, I've never been called that before. Right. <laughs> Which that's funny. Yes. Um, but Adrian Brody's character calls him the F slur mm-hmm. um, when he thinks that he's going to be taking boy with Apple. And then, um, you know, there's that very funny scene where they all punch one another sort of in mm-hmm. order. Yes. Um, there's sort of a shot, reverse shot. So that each punch is framed the same way as the last. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, we're behind the back of the puncher. And to um, to go um, back to the Life Aquatic, all of these people take Bill Murray's advice. You don't say you're going to punch him. Mm-hmm. You just sucker punch him. That's right. <laughs> but um, then later he says, you know, Adrian Brody says, like, if you ever have laid a finger on my mother, um... You know, I'm going to kill you, basically. And mm-hmm. he says, well, I thought you said that I was. Yeah. And then says the slur I thought again. I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, well, you are, but you're bisexual. And right. that's supposed to be a joke. But I have a theory about this, which softens my understanding of this, though I don't think it absolves the usage of it. Right. Okay. Because every time this word is being used, it's suppo- it's being used as a joke. In, yeah. Or the- in the context of a joke. Yes. And that's the problem I have with it because it's a word that for some people is so deeply painful that it's really hard to hear it, I think, for those those people as a joke. Um, the What I realized when I was watching this movie today, my sort of theory on this, which lines up perfectly with what you just said, mm. is that Wes Anderson's probably been called that word before. You think? <laughs> and... There is, there has been conversation, which I can't, like, it's not like I can link to anything, but I've heard different comedians and people talk about this. Like, I'm sure I've heard Cameron Esposito talk about it on Query, which is that 
there are comedians who are sort of soft, you know, little soft boys, little softies. Mm-hmm. Soy and boys. They get called this word, and so they put it into their comedy because not that they feel like they own it, but they're trying. It was traumatic for them. Yeah, is the point. Right. It's traumatic in a different way, mm-hmm. but it's still deeply painful. And so one of the ways. Because it's being used in such a violent way. Right. Not because it's wrong to be gay, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like Wes Anderson is probably, you know, if if Gustav is the Wes Anderson of the movie, it makes sense to me that he is this sort of, you know, very put together, um, effe- but also slightly effeminate dude right. that then gets called out on his sexuality and what that could mean right so that makes it make a little bit more sense to me as to why wes anderson feels the need to do this two times in his movies Mm -hmm. i (laughs) i just don't think he needed to but right i also want to point something out and i'm i don't intend to try to uh, absolve to use your word that's not the point yes i'm trying to it's make con- we're, we're we're thinking about why people are doing these things in context and, right yeah and just to add to the context uh that we're bringing to it when we talked about this in the life aquatic we talked about how that slur is in the mouth of an anti-hero who mm-hmm. who is the main character of the movie and who is he's the titular character he's very much yes. centered and in this movie because because it's in this adventure genre um there are characters in this movie who are simply caricatures yeah like Adrian Brody's character and Willem Dafoe's character they have no like inner life that we're curious yeah. about. Like, There's no interiority. In the way that like a children's story would have, mm-hmm. they are villains. Yeah. And so he's that, got the mustache. Right. That well, ev- everyone has a mustache, but <laughs> uh, real or fake. Uh, the um, uh, the point the, the point is that 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 uh, just for comparison's sake. Before yeah. it was the main character who is sort of an anti-hero. This time, the same slur is in the mouth of an actual villain, like mm-hmm. a, a sort of snidely whiplash level, there's nothing sympathetic about him, villain character. And and that person is is using it against, you know, our our hero. Yeah. Um, who is also a little bit of an anti-hero, but... Uh, not not in the same way that Steve Zizu was. Yeah, no, like he's Steve not, Zizu yeah. was like kind of a bad guy. Yeah, Gustav is like a a hero who is a little bit like, narcissistic. Like a lot of heroes, he he just you know he makes some mistakes and he slips up yeah. sometimes. And I'm thinking of and in particular, I'm thinking of the scene right where the the prison break is complete and. And and zero doesn't have any of the things that Gustav expects him to have. Right. Yes. And and the the you know he belittles him for being an immigrant, and then we get the zero backstory, and then he comes around to saying like, oh, so you're really more of a refugee in that sense, and then yeah. and then they come back together again, and that scene talk about 
you know, okay, we're, we, we've been doing this for eight episodes now. We're finding things that we, we're finding a vocabulary for talking about mm-hmm. these movies that we keep repeating. Um, for example, talk about a scene that threatens to break the movie. Like that, yeah. that scene comes precariously close to just shattering the whole movie apart and it can't come back from it. Um, but I think it walks that tightrope quite gracefully. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that scene too because um, I feel like the conclusion he comes to is almost like some immigrants are better than others, which isn't great either. Yeah, it's not nice and neat and perfect and yeah they don't come out and say exactly what uh you know i think a person should think and feel yes um which which you know it's we don't expect these characters to necessarily be perfect but again when you have a mostly white cast and this is your one yeah um, and i i think yeah i think when he says like oh you're actually a refugee there's there's one reading of that which I think that you're alluding to, which is that oh okay, um, if if zero were an immigrant and not a refugee, mm-hmm. you know he he would feel that his racism was justified. Yeah. But there's another reading which I think is closer to the intent of what's going on in the scene, which is that like that's that's the the language that someone in his position is equipped with to deal yes. with this situation. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, his his sympathy ha- his sympathy for an immigrant has been activated. Mm-hmm. Therefore, okay, I, I have this category called refugee that I can put them in where it's like, okay, the narrative is different. Yeah. And I and I think that it also is like him attempting to say, like I I acknowledge the strife that you experienced, right? But if but for a moment, like almost blacking out the idea that that would mean that he hadn't been able to acknowledge that from like a quote unquote regular immigrant, right? <laughs> I do. I also want to talk about the casting here, um, because. Zero was supposed to be from, again, like a fake Middle Eastern country. Yeah, that's, that's, they stopped just short of saying that. Yeah. Um, and Elder Zero is, um, you know, played by Murray Abraham, F. Murray Abraham, mm-hmm. is, um, he was born so he's born in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. but his parents were Syrian and Italian. Mm-hmm. So that tracks. Yeah. But uh Tony is uh an American whose parents are Guatemalan. Yep. And so it's again, it's like and apparently the casting process for that was also just like, you know, anytime he try he needs to cast a kid, it's like he's dug himself into a hole. <laughs> mm-hmm. Apparently they did casting like all over the world trying to find. Well, the the point is that they have to discover someone. Yeah. It's the same as it was for Moonrise Kingdom and for Rushmore. It like um, demands that it 
that it not only be a young person, but it be someone new. Yeah. I'll compare it to this. Um, I've been watching, and I've sort of been on pause for a couple of months, but I watched a lot of The L Word for the first time. Okay. Do you know about The L Word? Yeah. So The L Word is like a, it was, well, and they've rebooted it, but um, it was like a, like 2000s, like an aughts show about lesbians. And it was like groundbreaking and it was also messy. And I don't mean messy like, um, I don't mean messy like, I mean like it just like there are things that they do in that show with like, like the way that they do shot, like shots of things and just like plot devices and like the way that they have like things like lighting just like all across the board it's like incredibly uneven <laughs> mm, it's a little sloppy yeah okay um but one of the things that they did was they hired and this is sort of the opposite of this a character named um or they they had a character for two seasons who name whose name was Carmen and she's um she's this uh i think she's supposed to be uh, Mexican American, she's Hispanic, and um, you know her whole family's his- like very, very Catholic, and um, her actress is Sarah Shahi, who's Persian. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one of the things that they always bring up on the the podcast I listen, I'm listening to that goes along with the show, is like they couldn't find any Hispanic actors in California, right, to play. <laughs> to play this hispanic character Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then the second time they do this again there's a character later named poppy and um i forget poppy's um the woman who plays poppy's um uh ethnicity but again it's uh, here we go she's indian she's half indian at least Mm -hmm. yeah she's half indian so again (laughs) And so I guess, I guess I just bring this up because, like, you know, I think it's always up in the air. But the question is, like, if they wanted to have somebody that was a Middle Eastern actor, like, do they do they need to have somebody from Syria if the the elder one's going to be Syria Syrian? I don't think so. But like, couldn't they give that? Op- couldn't they find somebody to give that opportunity to that was Middle Eastern? Especially since we know that there aren't. That again, that many Middle Eastern actors that are like all over the place, especially if you're only going to have one person in this movie that's a person of color, one character in this movie that's a person of color. Yeah, um, yeah, you, yeah, you, fair point. Um, I, I agree. That makes sense. Um, and who, and I also don't want to downplay that actor's acting, which I thought was very good, and I thought he did a great job and all of that. But Tony Revlori, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think he's great. Um, who knows? why they did what they did or what their process was. Um, you know, I don't, who knows what their excuses would be. <laughs> um, it, it, it certainly doesn't take anything significant away from my enjoyment of the film in the way that like, for example, hypothetically, if it were a white person, yes, that, absolutely. that would be different. And that would, that would take points away from it. Um, mm-hmm. say, thing with the l word that you're talking about um so uh and certainly yeah our 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 standards for this kind of behavior are changing somewhat drastically right like Mm -hmm. we're there's 
there's a lot of conversation about this. It's the mm-hmm. it's the ongoing uh, Scarlett Johansson conversation, right? Yes. Um, that, oh, which, that we which, will continue to have. Did we talk about race in Moonrise Kingdom? I could not remember this. Um, I don't think we really did. I, I just edited it this morning, and I don't recall that we did. I think I said this, and maybe if, if I didn't, then this can be a, a little baby old business segment. Yeah. Old business. I feel like part of this movie, it's doing the thing that Moonrise Kingdom does, which is that when you're doing a period piece. Can I stop you real quick? Yeah. You you did say this, but you said it in the context of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, okay. During the Moonrise Kingdom episode. Oh, there we go. That, that you, you, you called it kind of a uh, crappy get out of jail get free, out of jail free card. card. Yeah. Yes. That's the same thing here, which right. is that it's in 1932 in Europe. So like right. it makes sense that most of the people are going to be white and in the movie. And it's high society. Yes. It's like he sort of dodges a bullet, but like just barely. Right. <laughs> We'll, we'll, hey, we get to have a whole different type of conversation about this topic <laughs> one week from now. I know. Uh, won't that be uh, enjoyable and not at all uh, a minefield that I, I know. <laughs> would rather go around than ever enter? <laughs> I'm just going to push you. Um, so I have a sort of, so, so all I want to talk about Mm-hmm. is uh, actors now. Yeah. Yes, go um, ahead. Sorry. But, but no, no, no. But it, it's okay. But th- I, I, this is sort of a big... Um, the way I want to talk about it is like a big, big bite. Maybe more than, okay. maybe more than we can chew. It, Before you get into that, can I mention a couple more actors that we didn't mention? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Um, just because they're important to me. So somebody that is in this that I didn't realize because I didn't know who she was at the time is Leia Sadow. Yes, Sudeau. yes. Thank you for remembering that. Um, she plays Cotilde, which is a maid um, at Schloss Lutz. And um, she's also in the French Dispatch. Mm-hmm. I know her almost exclusively from the video game Death Stranding. Yes. I have which not have you played pl- Death Stranding? I have not played it yet. It's like a long game, but it's very beautiful and I think worth... Kenny played through the whole thing. He really loved it. I watched him play a lot of it. And she really does act in that video game. Yes. I I know her from recent James Bond. (laughs) Yes. Okay. She's also in that, which I didn't even think of her in that. But so she's in this and that made a lot of sense to me because then she shows up again in The French Dispatch and there we go. Yep. Um, We also get two little notes from um, Moonrise Kingdom. Mm Mm-hmm. Lucas Hedges shows up as the dude filling up Willem Dafoe's gas. Yes. And then I forget his full name, but I think his name is Otto something. He's the new lobby boy mm-hmm. at the hotel when they get back from their adventure and right. they return. And uh, who is scolded by Zero for right. being uh, too vocal. Yes. Right. For, for giving oh. away secret information. Which one more thing before we talk about your, your thing, which is that in other movies, we've talked about how like, you know, like they're in Rushmore and then they leave and they never come to ra- back to Rushmore. Right. They're in the Darjeeling Limited. They leave and they never come back to the Darjeeling Limited. They come back to the Grand Budapest Hotel, mm-hmm. which I is sort of, I guess, expected, but yeah. it's not expected for Wes Anderson. Right. 
Yeah, Owen Wilson shows up in this movie as well. Yes. We haven't even <laughs> the mentioned the very that. end. Yeah. Kind of crazy, but you know, still makes sense. So yeah. um first off, I want to pick up a thread that I think I uh strategically inserted into a previous conversation about um casting as as a kind of shortcut. Yes. And um the reason I wanted to talk about this was was because of the part that Bill Murray plays in this movie. Yes. Yes. So you brought this up initially when we were talking about the father in the Darjeeling Limited whose son dies, right. who doesn't speak a word of English. Yeah, you were and he's talking a really about how... I can't remember his name now, but he's a really famous, well known actor right. who's in a bunch of like big budget, commercially available stuff. Right, exactly. So isn't it weird that he's in this part where he doesn't have any lines in English, you know, none of his lines are subtitled. It's like it's it's as if he doesn't have any dialogue. Mm-hmm. What's he doing in this part? And so uh, the context for for me for for talking about this is um, I assume you've seen the movie Cabin in the Woods. Oh, yes. I love that movie. Yeah. So um, I don't remember where I picked this up, but I must have like seen an interview uh, or something with Drew Goddard, who wrote okay. and directed that film. Is that right? Mm hmm. Um, Possibly. I think of that as a, uh, that's a Joss Whedon movie, right? Yeah, he didn't direct it though. So uh, Sigourney Weaver, uh, spoiler alert, shows up. Drew Goddard, you're correct. Yeah. And also written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard. Right. Sigourney Weaver shows up at the end. Do you remember her part? No. She basically delivers a big exposition dump right at the end of the movie mm, where like the, okay. the two who have survived up to this point meet her. She's sort of like the head of the operation mm-hmm. and she is there to tell them and by proxy the audience what has actually been going on. Mm-hmm. And the interview that I saw or heard um, said, uh, yeah, we, we got Sigourney Weaver to do this not only because she's a legend and mm-hmm. a legend of of the genre and so you know what an what an honor um but because uh you know we wrote this scene and we were like okay we have a lot of information to get out and it is coming from basically the head of the bad guys oh right yeah but the, but the information is all true Mm-hmm. And and we need for the audience to trust this person. Oh, wow. Even though there's good reason why they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And so we got Sigourney Weaver because like you're, you're going to listen to her and and trust her and, and take what she says to be the truth because she's Sigourney Weaver. Uh-huh. And that is just like taking a shortcut to like they had a problem with the writing of their script. And they were like, how do we solve this problem? Well, we just get the right person to play this part and we then yeah. we don't have to write it any differently. And I had never, prior to see this, learning this fact, I, I had never thought about casting in this way. Yeah. I had only thought about like, okay, well, they must cast whoever is right for the part, you know, meritocracy, whoever is best for it. 
I never thought of like strategically casting someone based on their like cachet and like the relationship that the audience has, not to the character that they're playing, but to the actor and their whole career mm-hmm. and their filmography. Um, and that's why I wanted to talk about that as the reason why Bill Murray plays the part that he plays in this movie. Yeah, okay. Is because we are introduced kind of suddenly Mm -hmm. uh, to the Society of the Crossed Keys. And um, it's not a perfect analogy. It's not the same as Cabin in the Woods because we trust Gustav and Gustav trusts them. And we're Mm -hmm. learning about them through Gustav. So you don't need that to be Bill Murray in the same way that perhaps Drew Goddard needed that person to be Sigourney Weaver. Um, But um, there's uh, this movie is also a a comedy, right? And Mm -hmm. this the setup for the Society of the Cross Keys is kind of a kind of a funny joke. Um, Yeah. uh, You know, how do you get a table at Shea Dominique? on a Thursday and and the fact that the day of the week is Thursday is kind of yeah. funny. Um, you know, why that day? Uh, and uh, uh, so when, when he calls up the Society of the Cross Keys, there's a lot of subterfuge in this movie, right? It's mm-hmm. an adventure movie. It's a, like, you don't know, al- there's a conspiracy in this movie. Yes. You don't Mysteries. always know what's going on. So there's room for the possibility that um, the Society of the Cross Keys is like not to be trusted or, uh-huh. or something along those lines. But he calls them up and who answers the phone but Bill Murray. And so this is a really small part for not as small as the businessman in the Darjeeling Limited, but mm-hmm. a really small part for Bill Murray that it's like, oh, okay. I can recognize you put Bill Murray in this part because you want us to immediately recognize like we trust the Society of the Cross Keys. They're on our side mm-hmm. and they have like the gravitas mm-hmm. and like the the air of, um, you know, we're in good hands mm-hmm. um, by by showing us Bill Murray as their their first representative. And then the yeah. rest is just like a series of more fun cameos that are that are not on the Bill Murray level, but yeah. but all have that nice like Wes Anderson connection thread running through them. Yeah, and Bill Murray too in the past he's used him in a similar way because like we were talking about how in Fantastic Mr. Fox he gets to do that exposition scene. Right. The Bogus Bunsen bean explanation. Yeah. And it's like um his voice is sort of both commanding and comforting. Yes. So to have somebody that's both commanding and comforting, even if he's not like um, like the president or something, yeah. like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. he's He's got a real authority and a presence, but he's also so inherently likable uh, that, yeah, it, it, he's perfect for that. So... I'll I'll transition from that to I have a couple of questions about casts and actors that I want to okay. ask you that I've been considering, mm-hmm. and one is about um and and I both of these questions I could save them for the end, 
mm-hmm. because uh, they are questions that are kind of asking you to consider not just this movie, but the whole thing. And there's still a yeah. movie we haven't talked about. But I don't want to save it until the end because I want us to have ample time to talk about these questions Yeah. week after week. So the first question is, okay, um, if there's a if there's an if there's a recurring ensemble and the holy trinity of that ensemble is Owen Wilson, Bill mm-hmm. Murray and Jason Schwartzman. Mm-hmm. They're they're off the table. Those those mm-hmm. are the the old mainstays. Yeah. If those are the old mainstays then who among all the people who joined later Mm -hmm. who in your opinion this is the question i've been considering for myself in our opinion Mm -hmm. is is the is the greatest asset is is the is the most welcome most fitting addition who are you most glad was added to the roster i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah um does this person have to be in a certain number of movies? Not necessarily, no. So I'm really glad to see Adrian Brody. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to I mean I know we talked extensively about him in the Darjeeling Limited, but like I think part of the reason I I know I talked about this in that move for that movie, but I think that part of the reason he works here is because he has lines of course and he delivers them, but like his body is so oddly shaped. Yes. That, like, the way that he's really learned how to move it mm-hmm. in a way that, like, is acting. Mm-hmm. Clearly, that's acting. Right. But, like, it feels really, like, particular to him, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think number two is Ed Norton. Yeah. Ed Norton, when Ed Norton shows up, it's like, um, he's such a weird actor. Mm. <laughs> he's not that weird of an actor. But like you and I were talking about how he plays a bunch of fucking psychos. Yeah. But he's this little dude. Mm-hmm. He's this little dude. Yeah. He's like kind of squirrely. Mm-hmm. But he also just seems like in real life to be a genuinely nice guy. Like you know how there are some actors that like in real life seem like they would also scare the shit out of you? Mm-hmm. Like if I were to actually meet Adam Driver, I think I'd lose my mind. Mm-hmm. I'd be so scared of him. He's so he seems like a person that doesn't talk. Do you know that he somehow kept his child secret from the world for over two years? That rules. The only reason that people found out were because he was in the background of a photo that his sister-in-law posted holding a child mm-hmm. that didn't necessarily have to be his. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think I think Ed Norton, yeah. I mean, it sucks there's no women for me to choose. Well, okay, so that that's a good transition into my response uh, to my own question and to your response. Which is to say, um, yeah, your your picks are are perfect. Um, that uh, totally makes sense, and I agree with you. Um, when I consider this question, I am also considering Adrian Brody and Edward Norton entering the Wes Anderson family um, feels uh, inevitable to me. Mm-hmm. It it just makes so much sense. It they yeah. just jibe so well. Um, 
there are other people perhaps who uh, it's it's a match made in heaven, but it's not so obvious. And, oh, are you thinking about Tilda? Well, I sure. However, I was going I was going to say Sir Sharonin. Oh, right, because she does show up in the French Dispatch. She will, she? yes, yeah, yeah. And um, I not only do I want to say, you know, I think she's wonderful in this movie. I think she, uh, this is uh, uh, superficial, but she's got one of the great faces I've ever she seen. She does. She's she is so beautiful. Is she your is she your Adrian Brody? Well, maybe she is. Yes, you could say that. <laughs> perhaps um, she. Uh, I I love to see her in anything, and uh, the more I see her in movies, the better. Um, it's not a given. It's not like a guarantee that yeah. she would work with Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank God she did and mm-hmm. and is continuing to do so. That to me is very exciting and, and energizing. Yeah. Um, and you brought it to Elda Swinton and that's that's true there as well. It, it's it's uh, uh, again, like a match made in heaven. I'm repeating myself. Yeah. Um, that Tilda they Swinton, work Swinton together. is like unworldly. Like oh, she's unreal. She, she, no one, uh, look, no one is Tilda Swinton, Swinton except Tilda Swinton. And I feel like that's part of the reason why she works in these weird small parts mm-hmm. because the movies are so, as we've discussed, like the like aesthetic is like the capital A word in these movies. And right. so her just like being fucking weird in these movies where she's almost not a real human makes so much sense. Tilda Swinton is almost like... If Doug Jones were as famous as he should be and everyone knew who Doug Jones was, mm-hmm. who um, do you know who I'm referring to? No, I was really hoping when I think of Doug Jones, I think of the representative from Alabama because our friends, our friends Tasha and Brian live in Alabama and are always campaigning for him. Yeah, no, um, basically, you know who Andy Circus is. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what Andy Circus is to motion capture performances. Oh, Doug Jones. Yeah, Doug. Yeah, Doug Jones is to you know full body makeup performances. He's he's from Hush. He's from uh, Hocus Pocus. He plays the dude with the hair. Mm-hmm. He's uh, from The Shape of Water. Yes, and Pan's Labyrinth and the two Hellboy movies, right. um, right. et cetera, et cetera. Tilda Swinton is is has Tilda Swinton has is, is so. Something else. She has this career where, like, she gets to be Tilda Swinton, and we know she, who she is. And but also, she does like almost Doug Jones levels of like, I've we've already <laughs> talked on this podcast about her parts in Suspiria and yes, and the experience yeah. that I had looking up the actor Lutz Ebersdorf and finding out that it was Tilda <laughs> Swinton playing an old man. Um, wait, 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 Lutz. Yes, Lutz, exactly. Did that come out after this? Yeah, Suspiria was after this, yeah. Do you think she picked Lutz, Lutz, because... Maybe. That's the name of her her town, that right. she owns her... Yes, she says, come with me, and he says, to fucking Lutz. <laughs> that's one of the first moments in the movie where it, like, breaks in a way that's really funny. Oh, yeah, so funny. It's like, oh, okay, not only does he swear a lot, but, like, even with his... He's critical of the people he you know, dotes on. Even, yeah, even with his guests and yeah, who, yeah. He can just be himself with them. 
I also, I mean, this isn't that surprising, but like her makeup is so incredible. And I read that it was like five hours of makeup. Right. To get yeah. I read that too. That. And I read that Wes Anderson, this might've been part of the commentary summary I read. Wes Anderson said like, you know, we're on a budget and we'll do some things the, you know, small budget way, but just for this one thing, let's spare no expense on the old age makeup. Like let's get literally the most expensive makeup people we can get and do, do the, you know, do it up, uh, which yeah. is great. I think it's, it's, it, it's in, it's it was the right place to do it for sure. Movie. It's great. Yeah. Okay. The, I have another question. Okay. Which I almost, uh, asked last week. Right. And I uh-huh. wanted to ask it last week because we talk so much about in Moonrise Kingdom about how many new additions there are to the ensemble and and mm-hmm. how few people we've seen before there are. And again, I could save this question for the end for episode 10 where we don't have a movie to talk about. But um, I wanted to both get your gut reaction on Mike on the podcast. Yes. And also, uh, le- in addition to that, give me the time to think about I it. I wanted to give you time to consider it so that we would get your more thoughtful answer okay. later. And so I was going to introduce it last week, and it would be like a segment for the last stretch of movies. Mm-hmm. There's time now, and it's still fitting to talk about it in the context of this movie because this movie is an extravaganza of, you know, uh, famous actors. Yeah. The question is, who hasn't Wes Anderson worked with who you would just die to see him work with in the future? Yeah. And and, and I mean actors when I say that clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, while you're thinking, I, I started considering this question a couple of weeks ago when we were, when Dane and I were on vacation uh-huh. and we were kind of in the car for a while. And so I, I delivered this question to Dana and we were just sort of bouncing ideas off of each other. And so I've been brainstorming on it for like two or three weeks. Okay. So my first, my gut reaction is to go with my favorite people, right? Yes. So my first person that doesn't count but does Mm -hmm. is Natalie Portman. Yeah. Because Natalie Portman has had a role, but Mm -hmm. mm, my second gut reaction for like a dude would be Adam Driver Mm -hmm. because that would be so weird Mm -hmm. if... Because Adam Driver is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> He's such a weird dude. And I just, I can't, like, to be, I know, like, I just thinking of him doing the deadpan or having to, like, be fit. Like, he just, I think part of the reason Adam Driver is so, such a strong actor is because he can be totally quiet and be terrifying and then suddenly be incredibly violent mm-hmm. and also be terrifying. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So. And. I th- I think also I might like to see someone who is maybe an actor but not always an actor like mm-hmm. a Janelle Monet. Mm-hmm. Janelle Monet too like 
when you just think about like she's so into like the aesthetic of her clothing and stuff like she had that whole thing with the suits for like her wearing suits for a while yeah so that i feel like she would like aesthetically make a lot of sense right in a wes anderson movie Mm -hmm. that those are my gut reactions that's interesting i'll just piggyback on that last one to say there was a sort of third question sort of an asterisk We've already started to talk about this. When we talked about Fantastic Mr. Fox, we talked about movie stars. Yeah, right. And the other question that I'm interested in considering, which we've already started to talk about in that context is, who can't be in a Wes Anderson movie? Right. And to sort of flesh out that list a little bit. You know, we already talked about Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt. I think that... I brought up Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio. I think that Janelle Monet is someone who you could, I think you could make a case for or, or against. Uh, and what I mean is, I think you made a good case for, I think you could also make a case that she, as like a pop star, has so much of a persona to, mm-hmm. to cultivate that she could not give herself over to someone else's vision that she didn't mm-hmm. have like create some c- real creative control over. And I imagine that she'd not be, if she were in it, she probably wouldn't be like the main character. Uh-huh, yeah. I do have another thought of somebody that couldn't be in a Wes Anderson movie. I have one or two as well. What's yours? Mine is, I believe, the woman who makes the most money out of any woman actress right now. Go on. Which I think is Scarlett Johansson. Um, hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's true about Scarlett Johansson, but I would believe it. She got married last weekend, by the way. Congratulations. Yes, to uh, Colin Jost, my fellow Regis High School alumnus. Right. Which I bring up because Kenny said that when he read about this, it said um, that they got married over the weekend. And Kenny was like, when? (laughs) Because they record – because, you know, they take some weekends off from SNL. Mm. But, like, they didn't last week. Like, the weekend that they got married, they didn't. So he was like, like, literally, when did they do this? Like, at what point in the weekend? I think Sunday is traditionally their day off. Sure, but he's been up until 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning. It's a shitty day for a wedding. Yeah. uh (laughs) <laughs> that they, they they have different ways than us <laughs> than we do um i i kind of think no i i don't want to see scarlett johansson in a wes anderson movie but yes i think she certainly could be yeah i mean she was just in a noah bombach movie like last year right that's true and, and they're buddies. That's, so is Adam Driver. That's yeah, that's right. Both yeah, two people you it mentioned was marriage in story. two different contexts. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, let me just offer, I'll offer more in the future. Today, yeah. I thought to myself, uh, I just I just thought about Nicolas Cage. No. And so I thought like, okay, yeah, you we're probably past the point of Nicolas Cage ever being able to be in a Wes Anderson movie and, and that that couldn't possibly work today. Yeah. Um, now, as far as people I do want to see him work with, I I want to do this in stages uh, for the next couple of weeks. And I was going to save this for the end. 
Mm-hmm. But you mentioned Adam Driver, and so you you dragged me into to doing this first. Yeah. When I have been brainstorming and considering this question, you considered like, okay, who are your favorites? Mm-hmm. I have cons- I've mostly gone down the paths of trying to consider, okay, like what things have I seen full of recently full of people who he hasn't worked with and I'm just going uh-huh. through like casts of other movies and other franchises in my head. Mm-hmm. And so you started going through Marvel? No. Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah. I was, yeah. I, I thought to myself, okay, uh, who are, I'm just thinking, who are actors? Well, there's the Marvel movies and then there. And so I, I thought of Star Wars. Who, who are actors? Who are the actors I'm, I'm trying to consider? And so I think of the movies mm-hmm. and I thought of Star Wars and I was going to save this for the end, but I am going to engage in and I would invite you to engage in as well if you like power rankings of who from the new Star Wars movies would be best suited to working with Wes Anderson. And here's my opinion. Yeah. Number one, Daisy Ridley. Okay. I feel very strongly about this. Yes. I think Daisy Ridley, I, I think Wes Anderson should be the person to step in and make sure that Daisy Ridley has a career post Star yes. Wars. Agreed. And I think they'd be great together. Number two, Mark Hamill. Yeah. Oh. Oh, fuck. Just, yes. just do, just one of, just one of those Bill Murray it. roles. Yes. Give it to Mark Hamill instead. Yes. While, while, we, while we still can. Um, number three, Kelly Marie Tran. Uh-huh. Number four, John Boyega. Really? Okay. Actually, not I, for John Boyega. Actually, I'm I'm, I'm going to take that back. Number four, Adam Driver. Number five, John Boyega. Do you know who my number one is? Uh, who? Oh wait. Well, well, you, you're, are you going to say Oscar Isaac? Oscar Isaac. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a really interesting question. Because I've seen him in other things where he's like, and I've seen interviews with him, and I can just see it. Yeah, i I don't disagree with you. i I think that I think that there the potential is there. I he'd be sort of a Adrian Brody esque mm-hmm. character. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. That possibility is definitely there. I think when I think of Oscar Isaac. Besides Poe Dameron, I think of Ex Machina, mm. and I think of how like it, uh, I I think of Oscar Isaac as like the guy who can play that frightening, menacing character mm-hmm. in Ex Machina, um, yeah. and how uh, different that is from anything in a Wes Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why I saved him for the end of my list. Yeah. But if Oscar Isaac were to work with Wes Anderson, um, I would be very happy to be proven wrong. Um, can we? There's like one major thing from the movie that we haven't talked about, and we're getting on to time. Yeah, please. So can I? The fucking screen ratio. Thank you, thank you. Yes. Uh, Which again, I was watching it on my phone, but I think that if I hadn't watched it on my phone, at one point I thought I had done something wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
What's up with that? Can you tell me? No, I'm... I mean, I guess it has to do with the frame story. I don't like it. Oh, no. Oh, no. You gotta love this. this... Can I tell you why I don't like it? Why? Because it feels like Wes Anderson was like, what if I only had this much space to make a shot? Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, okay, so real quick. Um, I'm glad you brought up aspect ratio because I would have forgotten about it. And that's like something that's right up my alley. I need to talk about it. Yeah. And also real quick, um, the other thing that's right up my alley that we need to give a minute to is the awards. Right, yes. This movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Yeah, a lot. Uh, it won for costumes. It won for makeup and hairstyling. It won for original score. And it won for production design. Totally mm-hmm. all that makes sense, especially the last one, in my opinion. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture. Wes Anderson was nominated for Best Director. Uh, it was nominated for uh, Cinematography. Uh, Robert Yalman is his uh, cinematographer. It was nominated for film editing and it was nominated for original screenplay. Uh, Just to put this in context a little more, um, this is the year that Birdman won Best Picture. Um, And so uh, that's the reason it lost, not only in that category, but but others uh, as well. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, This, my opinion about this movie is that um, if Robert Yalman is uh, the cinematographer and we can say that he is the person who shot this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, then like this is, this in my opinion is his masterpiece of, yeah. and he's shot all of Wes Anderson's movies. The aspect ratio changes depending on what time period we're in in the story. Yes, and, that I did pick up. And we spend the most time in the 30s and at that point the aspect ratio is full screen yes full screen yeah in the old sense of you know this is how tvs used to be shaped and so there was Mm -hmm. full screen and then there was widescreen Mm -hmm. um so it's a square it's a it's like uh the lighthouse um yeah i uh, i love i love this (laughs) do you remember what i texted you when i watched the lighthouse no remind me you were you laughed I bet in I, a way like it was in text message, but you actually laughed. Mm-hmm. You said, um, "I said, um, is this whole movie gonna look like a fucking Instagram?" Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you were like, "Ha ha 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 ha!" <laughs> yeah, uh, that's good. Um, so is the lighthouse, and so is this movie, and so mm-hmm. is working in different aspect ratios. This is something that has just been sitting at the bottom of the toolbox and Wes Anderson, if I have been paying attention correctly, has, has never picked up this tool. No, and, he hasn't. And I've sort of been, I, I sort of forgot that it was used in this way in this movie. And I've sort of been waiting for like, well, when is he going to have fun with that? Or is he, mm-hmm. is he more conventional in that sort of technical way? Um, the other thing in the toolbox, which I don't think that he's ever used before, but he does by the end of this movie, is black and white. There's yes. one scene in this movie that is in black and white. Mm-hmm. And um, all of these things are just sort of technical formalities that just um, do something to affect like the mood, right? Yeah. That, and, 
and the and in this case of the aspect ratio it affects the composition and mm -hmm. and the way that you put it is like okay yeah we're used to like there's so much more room in this widescreen format therefore the square the full screen aspect ratio must be like more restrictive and mm -hmm. so therefore it might be like a challenge to mm -hmm. a director or a cinematographer a constraint a constraint let's say. yes it is a mm -hmm. it is a constraint and um it, it there's no denying that um i but i also think that it is it's so much more than that um and it, it's it 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 really like uh it it, it realizes mm -hmm. the the russian nesting doll framing device of the going yeah. from time to time to time narrator to narrator to narrator and um it also evokes like that you know the the sort of beating heart concealed at the center of this movie is uh is is nostalgia and mm -hmm. is you mm -hmm. know trying to preserve a set of ways from a time that is is leaving that set of ways behind mm -hmm. um and so yeah i think it was sort of important that like the the film be shaped differently mm -hmm. that that it that it sort of um like the form matches content yeah the form matches content the form has a function yeah the frame is part of the picture that's all stuff that i've said before when i've talked about the films in like a metatextual way mm -hmm. this is like important that um the the whole world be of a piece yeah and that includes like the the framing of the film itself yeah the, the shape of the image itself I, I appreciate all of these things, and I'm sure that they're working. I guess I'm just greedy, and I just wish it was consistent and wide and took up all the space. Yeah, and the other thing that's going on here is I could repeat myself with what I said last week about um, my enjoyment of aspects of the films that are not subtle and mm -hmm. how um, I have to confess that that makes me feel like a little bit of a rube you know mm -hmm. is like okay anyone could recognize like something different is going on here um but uh someone more sophisticated might question the purpose of it and and mm -hmm. might ask you know what well is this just flash for flash's sake um or or is it uh you know, doing something actually interesting. I, I, I just, in in a in a way that might not be entirely sophisticated, I just get excited when I see a film or a TV show play with, uh, you know, aspect ratio uh, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, something that we're gonna talk about uh, another time if I get my way is um, the the show Fargo will do this a lot. Oh, okay. Well, just sort of like bring the bars down, you know, make it, you know, even wider, even narrower, um, do things with split screen where 
it's not only like the split screen we saw in Moonrise Kingdom, but it's mm-hmm. like there's like bars separating the different scenes that we're seeing. And I, I think too, I just want to be clear. I don't think I would. it would have bothered me. I, part of the reason it bothered me is because that's where we spend most of our time. Mm-hmm. I think if it was used like, you know, like that one scene in black and white. Yeah. If Wes Anderson put out a black and white or a largely black and white movie, I would be like, dude, you're good at color. <laughs> well, there's definitely going to be some of that in the French Dispatch. So yes, that'll be sure. interesting to so see. So we'll see how much. Yeah. But And maybe that's him being like, well, I'm good at color. Let me try to not do color and still be successful. But anyway. Yeah, which is sort of worthwhile. But as as it's even more, it's more worthwhile if it's, you know, serving the function, like you said, for, form reflecting function, having a function yeah. reflecting the content. And uh, yeah, I think that this movie uh, does that really well in in the way that I think they all do to some extent, but this this mm-hmm. one maybe to a, the greatest extent. Um. So really quick, your favorite scene? Oh, um, I can say mine. While yeah, you think. go ahead. I ha- I have two. Um, one is the long form introduction to Agatha because we get her briefly right. um, on a bike, but that whole sort of exposition scene where we learn how they met up to and that leads up to the um her making the tools on the conveyor and then them coming across and then that ending with the conveyor belt where the dude's just like wrecking all the food that's coming in Mm -hmm. but then he just sees how beautiful they are yeah and doesn't um and then the second is i do really like the society of cross keys montage um which is just funny and fun and um feels very wes anderson andersony in the best way right um, I think my favorite scene is probably the part of the movie in the monastery. Yeah, that that's really good too. Yeah. I think that that just uh, has a lot of laughs and like the tension is really ramping up in the plot yeah. at that point. Confess. I'm innocent. Yeah. What? <laughs> no. Uh, was there anything else on your checklist? I think that's all I have. Great. Hey, we only got one movie left. Yeah. It's called Isle of Dogs. Uh-huh. And then we're going to stick around for one more episode. My my list. Your rankings? That's what I have to say. Life Aquatic, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom. Now I can't remember any of the names of these movies. Um, <laughs> Darjeeling Limited, Grand Budapest, Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore Bottle Rocket. I will reveal my rankings in episode 10. (laughs) Uh, I'll see you next week. A whole new world will. A magic place maybe that we have known. (laughs) Hmm. Oh, God. I'll see you next week. Love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye. (laughs) Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at youngest of one. And his website is williamhoffacker.com. You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram, at exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com, and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs>